I love a good story. I remember especially growing up when in fifth grade I read for the first time the Lord of the Rings trilogy. And I was so fascinated by that, those books. Because I entered a world through those books, a world of excitement and adventure and relationship and growth. And there was so much about it that touched my soul in ways that I don't think I'd ever been touched. I think we as people tend to like story. We want to enter stories that are bigger than ourselves. Because if we're really honest, we tend to feel about our own lives that they're boring, <laughs> that they're mundane. We, we're busy. We have to handle so many daily details and we can feel like our lives are meaningless. And so we get drawn into story. I think that's why there's such popularity of TV, soap operas and dramas, movies, books. Because we're drawn into those stories because we want to enter story that's bigger than us. I think part of what happens for us is that in general, I think women long to be drawn into a story where they feel truly wanted, truly loved. I think that's a question in every woman's heart. Am I really wanted? Am I really loved? So women are drawn especially to stories that are relational, that, that they can feel like, at least in some sense, as I'm drawn into the story, I can feel somewhat wanted and loved, even though it's not my story. Yet I long for that. It awakens something for a woman. Men especially struggle with, am I adequate? Do I have an adventure to live? Is there something about me that's competent enough to handle life? Am I enough? And so we get especially drawn into stories of adventure because we want to be part of that story. We want to vicariously, again, enter into that and feel like I have something to offer. I am enough for this situation. I can be a hero. But then we end up returning to our everyday, tired, busy lives. But somehow stories help us believe that there's more. Stories help us believe that, at least for a moment, I am wanted. I am enough. I am adequate. Well, God knows our hearts. That's why He made so much of the Bible story. And we've been going over the last number of months, the story, true, but it's a story of Exodus. Of God forming the nation of Israel, forming a people for Himself. It's a marvelous story of God at work, calling people who are slaves, lost, to become the people of God in whom He dwells. And you know, it's Israel's story, but it's also our story. The story of every one of us that have experienced the redemption of God. We are part of a bigger story. A reality that's so incredible. And the book of Exodus allows us to enter into that and understand that story a little better. Well, today we end our journey through the book of Exodus. It's become kind of like an old friend. I feel like I'm saying goodbye in some ways. I've really loved this book and learned a lot. 
As we cover the last four and a half chapters today, I wish we could read it all. We can't. (laughs) But as we cover these last four and a half chapters, we reach the glorious climax of this book. Remember how the book began with a lot of problems. They were enslaved and they struggled all the way through. And this symphony of this book has had a lot of minor keys and difficult passages. But the end of the book, these last four and a half chapters, are a glorious, joyful climax. They're a wonderful part of it. It's, the book ends on a high note. And I think that's fabulous. Now, if you continue the story of Israel, they disobey and they fall. But at this point, it's a place of great joy because it's a place where God has formed these people into people who can respond to him and in whom he can dwell. Let me review the book real quickly for you. Remember, they started in Egypt as slaves, about two million Jews, with no real sense of God, no relationship with God. They're just slaves. They're oppressed. And their oppressors are trying to kill them. It's genocide, trying to destroy the nation of Jews. But God hears their cries for help. Raises up a redeemer, Moses. And Moses uses the power of God to create miracles, to do the ten plagues, to free them from Egypt. And Pharaoh lets them go. They're free. And they wander off into the wilderness and up against the Red Sea and they're trapped. Here comes Pharaoh's army after them. But God does an amazing thing. He parts the waters and the walls of water are on each side and the people of Israel walk through on dry land and come out the other side and then Pharaoh's army chases them and goes after them and the water comes down, washes over them and Pharaoh's army is destroyed. Then they wander in the wilderness for a while, for three months. And God uses that time to help them become dependent on Him, to form a people that can trust Him for food, for water, for life. Then they come to Mount Sinai and the glory of God is displayed in thunder and lightning on the mountain. And Moses goes and listens to God and they're given the Ten Commandments. All the people hear God give the Ten Commandments. The covenant God wants a relationship with his people where they learn to love him and love one another. That really summarizes the whole Ten Commandments. And then God gives them this covenant to relate to him and how to to do that. But while Moses is on the mountain getting all this covenant, the people down below are saying, Moses has been God for a few days. He may never come back. Aaron, we need an idol to worship. So Aaron forms this golden calf. And they bow down and worship it and have an orgy party. And God comes down in judgment on them. And now the question is, what will happen to the people of God? God's redeemed them and helped them become dependent and made a covenant with them. And they violated it. They broke it. But remember what God said. He made another covenant. Only this covenant is based on forgiveness. He says, I will forgive you. I understand. I will continue pursuing you. I will continue loving you. And then at the end of the book, what we're covering, he says, okay, now build me the tabernacle, a place for me to dwell in your presence. He accepted them back. That's kind of the big picture of this whole book. That's Israel's story. But it's also 
our story, isn't it? Yours and mine. When we were lost and broken and had nowhere to go and we couldn't help ourselves, God called us and redeemed us, sent His Son to die for us and then drew us to Himself. Called us out of that slavery so that we could have life. Every one of us, if we know Jesus, has experienced that freedom of redemption. I just want to show you a card I got. Some uh, friends of ours sent us a card, Jeannie and I, and the address that it was addressed to Jeannie and I, and it, and the name and address was correct, but somehow it got returned to our friends, and they sent it on to us because they were intrigued by what it said. It said, "Return to sender." Inmate no longer in custody. (laughs) And I thought, either Jeannie's hiding something from me. (laughs) Or maybe God's trying to tell us something. You know, we were in custody. We were trapped. We were enslaved by sin and by Satan. Not just me, but every one of us. But you know what? The inmate's no longer in custody. See, that's our story. It's Israel's story. It applies to Israel, but it applies to us too. We're no longer in custody. We've been set free. But then God takes us into the wilderness like He did Israel, and we don't like that, but we all have experienced time in the wilderness where God is teaching us to depend on Him for food, for water, for life where we learn to walk with Him and trust Him. And He makes covenant with us and says, oh, love me and love others and experience the fullness of life because I offer that to you. And along the way, we continue to murmur and struggle and fail and resist to the point where we even worship idols. We all do that. But God says, I still offer you life and forgiveness. My relationship with you is not based on you doing it all right. It's based on forgiveness. So enjoy relationship with me. And then at the end of this book, these last four and a half chapters, we see what God has produced in this kind of, in these people of Israel. And it helps us understand what God wants to produce in us. What kind of relationship he wants to have with us. What kind of people he wants us to be as his people in this glorious ending to the book. First of all, I see that he wants to produce in us grateful hearts because of all that he's done. Grateful hearts. If you'll turn to Exodus 36, if you haven't turned there yet, please do. And I want to jump back to a passage, a verse that we looked at in the passage a few weeks ago. 36, verse 3. Now remember, God had said, come and bring everything to build the tabernacle. He told them how to build it. They had worshipped the golden calf and he said, come on, I forgive you. Now bring everything for the tabernacle. And in verse 3, chapter 36, it says, they received from Moses all the offerings the Israelites had brought to carry out the work of constructing the sanctuary. And the people continued to bring free will or thank offerings morning after morning. So finally, all the skilled craftsmen who were doing all the work on the sanctuary left their work and said, the people are bringing more than enough for doing the work the Lord commanded to be done. Tell them to stop bringing gifts. (laughs) You see, I think they were so awakened by thankfulness 
God hasn't rejected us. He still wants to be our God. That they brought even more than enough. They're expressing a heart of thankfulness. A heart of thankfulness. I think this heart of thankfulness is foundational to the Christian life. It's foundational to who we are as the people of God. When you see His forgiveness and His love of you, when you know you don't deserve it. To give thanks is one of the most repeated commands in the New Testament. Ephesians 5.20, for example, says, Always giving thanks for all things in the name of Christ Jesus, our Lord. For all things, even the struggles, even the trials, even the times in the wilderness that hurt. Yeah. See, part of our problem is we're not grateful because we feel like we deserve better. But once you see how trapped and enslaved you were in custody, but the inmate's no longer in custody, you've been set free, even though you didn't deserve it, you begin to be thankful for whatever you have because everything becomes a gift. How are you doing with thankfulness? Are you a complainer like Israel (laughs) tended to be? Or are you overwhelmed with God's goodness to you? Do you believe you deserve better? I think that's often what happens. We think, God, this isn't fair. I've tried to do the right thing. I've tried to follow you and look what you've given me. Or do you believe and understand deep in your heart that what you deserve is hell? All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Every one of us. We all deserve hell. Every one of us. But He's given you life. Even though you don't deserve it. You see, when you have that understanding deep in your soul, then everything is a gift and you are thankful for whatever comes your way. Every breath is a gift. Everything you have and are is a gift. In my own personal walk with God, I've struggled with that. I... I, I've tended to be a complainer, to feel like I deserve better. God, why are you giving me this? I try hard to obey you. I try to do the right thing. Why is life so hard? I have felt like I deserve better. I've been angry at God because He didn't do what I thought He should do. But I love this because I see what God did with Israel and I see what God's doing with my heart. More and more drawing me away from that criticalness towards Him and towards others and towards myself to a place of thankfulness. Lord, everything I have is from You. I don't, I don't deserve it. Thank You. Thank You for the people in my life. Thank You for the opportunity to serve You. Thank You for how You take care of me in ways that are marvelous. Thank You even for the struggles. Because I know that's how you're shaping my life into something beautiful. You see, that's what God wants to produce in us, is that kind of thankful heart, a grateful heart that recognizes and appreciates His undeserved love. So we see that with Israel. God has produced in them grateful hearts. 
And as we go on in this passage, we see God is also producing something else in their heart. He's producing obedient hearts. Obedient hearts. Now, it's interesting. Again, we don't have time to read it all, but if you read through this, God had said earlier in chapters 25 through 31, build the tabernacle and do it this way. And then they sinned and had to go through forgiveness. And then in chapter 35, God comes back and says, okay, build the tabernacle in this way. And then in 36 through 39, it says they built the tabernacle in this same way. (laughs) And then at the end of 39, and we'll look at it in a moment, it says, and it's a review of bringing to Moses what they built, and he says, yeah, they built the tabernacle in this way. Throughout the passage, throughout the section, it says, and they did, and they did, and they did. And it says over and over again, they did as the Lord commanded. As you read through it, that stands out over and over and over again. They did, they made, they did as the Lord commanded. Why so much repetition? I think it's for emphasis. He's saying, look where the people have come to a, from a place of not even knowing God to a place of their hearts are drawn to say, whatever you want us to do, we'll do. They've developed obedient hearts. Now, this is an unusual time in the nation of Israel because for most of their existence, they have not been obedient. But he's trying to make a point here. This is a high point in their lives that they have come to a place of having obedient hearts. And that's what God wants to produce in every believer as well. Let me just read a little bit just to give you a sense of that. Chapter 36, verse 8. All the skilled men among the workmen made the tabernacle with ten curtains of finely twisted linen and blue, purple, and scarlet yarn, with cherubim worked into them by a skilled craftsman. And then it goes on over the next several chapters, and they made, and they made, and they made. And it goes bit by bit, and it describes how they did it as the Lord commanded. And then over in chapter 39, verse 32. So all the work on the tabernacle, the tent of meeting, was completed. The Israelites did everything just as the Lord commanded Moses. Then they brought to the tabernacle and all the things that they did, exactly as God had said. And then verse 42, the Israelites had done all the work just as the Lord had commanded Moses. Moses inspected the work and saw that they had done it just as the Lord had commanded. So Moses blessed them. You think he's trying to make a point? (laughs) I think so. Obedience. An obedient heart is what God wants to produce in us. Now, we in the evangelical, Christian, Bible-believing world don't like to talk a lot about obedience because it sounds contrary to grace. We believe that it's not true that what I do saves me. It's what God does. It's His grace. It's His redemption. And that's absolutely true. We are not to obey to get God's favor. We are not to obey to get God's favor. That's the mistake the Pharisees made. To try to somehow do what's right so God will be pleased with you. But 
we obey because we have God's favor. You see, God has loved us so much and redeemed us and He has done it all. He has saved us. And out of that, because we love Him, we want to please Him. We want to obey. We're to have hearts that say, I want to obey you. I want to please you. Now, many of you, many of us, have had fathers that we obeyed. But we obeyed out of fear. Because we knew if we didn't, we would get beaten or whipped, yelled at, disapproved of, whatever it might be. There's probably a few here, I think it's a very few, who had earthly fathers that you knew delighted in you, that you knew loved you no matter what you did. And therefore, you wanted to obey because you wanted to make him as happy as he had made you. (laughs) You wanted to bring joy to him. You wanted to delight his heart as he had delighted yours. Now, regardless of what kind of father you had growing up, and every father's imperfect, regardless of what father, our heavenly father is the second kind of father. And we can trust him as that and know that because he's loved us so much, we can have hearts of obedience. Obedient hearts that say, I want to please you. I want, I want to make you happy because you've done so many wonderful things for me. That's the attitude of Israel, I believe, at this point. And it's the same attitude that Jesus had, our Lord, Jesus. Over and over again, and he, as he describes his relationship with the Father, Throughout the Gospels, he says, I just do what the Father tells me to do. My joy is in doing what my Father tells me. My food is to do the will of Him who sent me. You see, Jesus, God Himself, walking on earth, part of the Trinity, said, you know what I love to do is obey my Father. We're told in the book of Hebrews that he learned obedience through the things he suffered. You see, it's not wrong to have a heart of obedience. In fact, it's the proper response of a mature heart to say, I want to do what you want me to do. I want to follow you. Because he's loved us so much. George MacDonald says this, Our Heavenly Father gave man the power to thwart his will that by means of that same power he might come at last to do the Father's will in a higher way than would otherwise have been possible to him. That's what God wants, is that we might have a heart to do his will out of love, a loving response to him. So like Israel, God wants to produce in you and in me an obedient heart, a heart that says, I may not understand everything that you're calling me to do, God. It doesn't always make sense to me, but my heart is, I want to do what you say. I want to do what you say. I'm willing to do what you say. Not perfectly, I'll fail. (laughs) But my heart is to do what you say. And we get in trouble if we think, well, I'll do what you say when I understand the purpose or I understand what it's all about. Again, George MacDonald writes, Had he done as the Master told him, 
he would soon have come to understand. Obedience is the opener of the eyes. We come to understand what God is doing and and the purpose of obedience and all that after we obey. (laughs) You see, you begin with obedience and then obedience is the opener of the eyes. So that's God's heart for us, that we would have hearts that say, oh, Lord, I want to do what you say, whatever that is, whether I understand it or not. So God's producing in us grateful hearts, obedient hearts, and third, life-giving hearts. Life-giving hearts. I read uh, the end of chapter 39. Let me read it again, verse 43. Moses inspected the work and saw that they had done it just as the Lord had commanded. So Moses blessed them. This is a direct tie-in back to Genesis chapter 1, where it says God saw all that he had made and he blessed them. He blessed his creation. So Moses does the same thing. Why? Because the people had come and brought all their creative gifts, all that they were, all that they had to offer, and they offered God. And you read through it and it says, He made this, He made this, He made this. Who made it? Each of the individual Israelites that God had given the skill and ability to. And they made all the different parts of the tabernacle and many people were involved using their abilities and gifts. And Moses is saying here, that you imitate the Father when you do that. As He created the heavens and the earth for a place for us to dwell. So now Israel had used all their abilities and gifts to create a place for God to dwell. Imitating the Father that He could dwell among us. God wants life-giving hearts. Hearts where we use all that we are to give life to others. Now, that was Israel building a tabernacle so he could dwell in their midst. But we're New Testament believers. How does God dwell in our midst today? In his people, right? In us. In us. God dwells in us. And so our task is to use whatever gifts he's given us and give life to his church, his people. To use what we have to bless him, to create beauty and life and draw people into his presence to encourage the life of God in one another. That's what we're to do. That's how we give life to one another, just as the Israelites did. Adrian, Michael, others who who have a wonderful gift for music, to share that gift with us to help us come into the Lord's presence and worship him, just as we will do for all eternity in heaven. God's given me gifts to dig into the Scripture and just open up the Word so you can see what's there and let God transform you through the power of His Word. That's what I'm called to do. Many of you have gifts that are different and and they look differently, but they're all to build the body of Christ. Maybe you're good at, at writing notes of encouragement to people and that's a wonderful way to bring beauty, the beauty of God to to other people. To have a life-giving heart. Maybe it's to encourage someone through phone calls or email. Maybe it's to bring a meal to somebody. Maybe it's to help them move or whatever it might be. Whatever God's laid on your hearts, don't hold back. Share the life that God's given you with others. Share the gifts God's given you with others. Because God wants to create a people who give life 
who shares beauty, who creatively offer his life with others. So God creates life-giving hearts. That's what he wants in us. And then finally, he wants to create glory-filled hearts. Glory-filled hearts. Let me read just the last few verses of the entire book of Exodus. This is how it ends. Starting in verse 34 of chapter 40. Moses had set up the courtyard around the tabernacle at the entrance. So he set up, set it up. He'd finished the work. Verse 34. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses could not enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled upon it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. In all the travels of the Israelites, whenever the cloud lifted up from above the tabernacle, they would set out. But if the cloud did not lift, they did not set out until the day it lifted. So the cloud of the Lord was over the tabernacle by day and fire was in the cloud by night in the sight of all the house of Israel during all their travels. What a contrast from the beginning of the book where there was no place for God to dwell. And now they've built a home, a tabernacle for him to dwell. Talk about extreme makeover home edition. God's come home. I guess there's only one thing left to say. Welcome home, Heavenly Father. (laughs) Welcome home. (laughs) You see, God's come home. He's there. He's dwelling among them. And that's His purpose that right in their midst, not up on a mountain, not in a pillar that's outside the camp, but right in the middle of the camp, He might dwell. You see, God wants to produce in us glory-filled hearts, hearts in which He dwells. Hearts in which his very life is at home. That he might be at home in our hearts. Paul says this in Colossians chapter 1. He says, this is the great mystery that I'm proclaiming. Christ in you, the hope of glory. Christ in us. That he might dwell in, in these broken vessels, in these weak things that we are. He wants to dwell in us and be the place that we might be the place where His glory lives in our hearts. So that wherever you are, at your work and your family, even in your weakness, you are the living presence of God. You are the place that people can see the glory of God, not because of you, but because of Him. That's what He's produced now in Israel, a place out of all the nations of the earth where He can live and be seen and His glory is evident. And that's what He wants to produce in us. His goal is to dwell among men, not in a tent or a temple, but in our very lives. Exodus started with a lost, broken, enslaved people in custody. But we're no longer in custody. You see, God led them out and began to work in them that they might learn to be dependent and walk with Him and trust Him. And even in their failure, they would turn to Him and experience forgiveness so that He could dwell in them and they might be the living presence of God in the world. That's Israel's story. But it's also your story and my story. It's exactly what God does with us. Because He calls us out and helps us learn and to relate to Him with gratefulness and out of forgiveness so that we would obey and be the living presence of God 
in a dark and confused world. In chapter 40, verse 17, it says this. So the tabernacle was set up on the first day of the first month in the second year. What day is the first day of the first month? (laughs) New Year's Day, right? You see, this was a new beginning for them. It was a new start. And I don't know where you are today, but God does. And He's offering you a new start today. In your confusion and lostness and addictions and and struggles to trust Him and failure, God offers you a covenant of forgiveness. He says, come to me. Learn to have a heart of gratefulness, obedience, where you learn to give your life away and where you learn to let me dwell so that you can be the very living presence of God in a world that desperately needs to know Him and love Him. Return to sender. (laughs) The inmate's no longer in custody. Verse 